good morning, afternoon, or evening, and welcome to the Bloody Disgusting Network. The following show is just horrifying. Beware. You're obsessed with her, and you're obsessed with her daughter! All right, easy, Geraldo. And welcome back to Horror Queers. We're talking your food won't digest and your wine will sour. We're talking a precursor to both Psycho and Rosemary's Baby. And we're talking Gene Brooks's bangs. And I'm Joe. Well, <laughs> what you got well, nothing to say to that? No, I was gonna say that shower scene, but you've already taken psycho. So hold on one second. Wait, 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 wait. Oh, okay. And I'm Trace, and we're talking rational Satanists. Um, uh huh. Uh-huh. We're, we're talking the seventh victim, everybody. And who boy, I hope you got a comedy to watch afterwards. I was gonna say, are you feeling nihilistic because this movie is like, hi. The world sucks. I mean, I mentioned this last week, I think, in our episode on Creep. Like, I, I'd never heard of this movie before. I didn't know what it was about. So I walked into this completely cold. Mm-hmm. Yeah, was not really prepared for that. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, no, everyone. So yeah, we are talking uh, the seventh victim. And of course, we have a guest today. So why don't we bring him on over here? So everyone, uh, he is an award-winning author that has been writing for print, stage, digital, and other media for more than 40 years, with his debut horror novel, The Bone Mother, winning the 2018 Sunburst Award for Excellence in Canadian Literature of the Fantastic in the adult fiction category. And his latest novel, Red X, a queer horror story, no less, was published just a few months ago back in August. Please welcome David Demchuk. Hello, and please introduce me always. I want you to be exactly like that everywhere I go. <laughs> at the supermarket, at the movie Absolutely. theater. Absolutely. <laughs> if I stop in at the daycare, where, wherever it is you want, you know, it just sounds wonderful when it comes out of your mouth. Oh my God, thank you so much. <laughs> oh my God, don't praise him. He already has such an inflated ego. Oh my God, no, I'm fine. I'm totally good. I'm, not, I'm already ready for resume. Um, but what? Welcome, David. How are you doing today? I am doing just fine, and I am so looking forward to talking about this film with you. Well, why is that? (laughs) (laughs) Just right off the bat. (laughs) You sound surprised and confused. No! (laughs) Well, like you, I, I had not really known about this movie, and when I did know about the movie... It was really hard to come by. And this, I'm talking like 25, 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. It was it was basically out of circulation. Mm-hmm. I had known and loved a number of Val Luton's movies. He uh, has produced some classic noir slash horror movies from the 1940s, the wartime mm-hmm. era, including Cat People and its sequel, Curse of the Cat People, and I Walked with a Zombie, mm-hmm. and just a bunch of them. And they all have this really interesting look and feel this tremendous atmosphere about them Mm -hmm. and there are some commonalities among them and there were a couple of movies that were incredibly hard to find one was the ghost ship which had legal troubles and was pulled out of circulation for like nearly 50 years and then the other one was the seventh victim it didn't have those kinds of troubles it was kind of a flop but Mm -hmm. it just wasn't really available and i remember 
when I moved here to Toronto, what happened was I got a video of it, a VHS of it, either at After Dark Video on Bathurst Street, a much lamented <laughs> uh, loss say, to our community. Anymore. That's oh, it's sure not there anymore. Or Suspect Video, which was on Markham Street, which also had a lot of cult classics, and it, it was a shady tape of some sort. It was like a dub or something like that. Mm-hmm. And I brought it, you know, home, and I and I sat down and I watched it, thinking to myself, "Oh, I'm really looking forward to seeing what this is like." <laughs> and I was just stunned actually because the whole time that i was watching it i was watching it through modern eyes Mm. but also through the eyes of what an audience must have felt in 1943 you had these like weirdly covert queer relations sometimes not very covert queer (laughs) relationships Mm -hmm. you had this central sort of mysterious figure the sister who doesn't really show up until halfway through the movie and all we hear about her is that she's this sensation seeker who wants to die and (laughs) and and this is not a thing you hear in the movies now never Mm -hmm. mind back then and then you have this very composed polite you know quite attractive group of devil worshippers we're told Mm -hmm. you know satanists who never have a ritual who never have an overt sacrifice who never have any sort of occult trappings about them whatsoever Mm -hmm. they just have these beliefs that they themselves find contradictory that they themselves question and everything around them was even more creepy because they were so genteel and they were so Mm -hmm. sophisticated and they here they were in greenwich village which of course itself at the time was heavily queer coded Mm -hmm. so the whole thing was just fascinating to me and i know we'll get to the ending but i just want to say we get to the ending (laughs) (laughs) there is so much going on and then we get to the ending and it's just it was perplexing and it was fascinating to me and it really felt like a precursor to a number of art films in the 50s 60s and then into the david lynch era mm-hmm. and and it just it just really intrigued me the moment i finished it i wanted to watch it again and at the same time i knew that there was no way to solve the puzzles of the film within the film it right. was just exactly what it is yeah I won't lie. I mean, I did watch this a second time today because I was just like, yeah, I first time watch, I was like, whoa, shit. Like, what is this? Yeah. I wanted to absorb it again, like knowing what it was. I will say there is a lot going on in this brief runtime. Mm-hmm. And I know this was never going to happen back in, what, 1943. But right. I really wanted the Satanists to be the protagonists of the film. <laughs> oh, they're fascinating. Yeah. They're completely fascinating. And there are things that happen with them like just things you see or things that occur that are just never spoken of there's Mm -hmm. one woman for example who just she has one arm yeah it is simply not talked about you Mm -hmm. see her you look carefully and she has one arm and it's like what's going on i believe she's the woman later on during we will talk about it later the (laughs) poisoning scene where she is just sitting at the piano playing a chord and then a chord Mm mm-hmm and then a chord. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> what is going on? <laughs> uh, Joe, when did you first watch this movie? 
Okay, so ironically enough, I only saw this because of David. So when I was doing my horror bucket list series last year, Mm -hmm. two years ago, what is time? Yeah. David ended up asking if I wanted to do this movie with him. And I, like David, love Val Luton. I'm a huge fan, but I've only seen more of his famous works. So I've seen Cat People. I've seen I Walked with a Zombie. I actually haven't seen Ghost Ship. I should check that out, but... Yeah, so we ended up watching this, and it was really fascinating to have a back-and-forth written discussion with David about this, because I think on first watch, it is a perplexing film. It's very beguiling. It's so atmospheric. But I found the story really lacking, and I was like, there's a bunch of stuff in here that just doesn't make sense. Like, why are there 85 million characters, and many of them (laughs) seem to have nothing to do? And then when you start to go into it, you realize... The production is troubled, there's weird stuff happening, there's cutscenes, deleted scenes, and it makes the film more fascinating, but also, as you suggested, David, it's like you just can't solve certain things within the film because they're also not there. And I love the confidence there. I've really grown to appreciate this movie in the years since I've watched it because it doesn't take you by the hand and give you all the answers and there's something mysterious and captivating about that and also like really maddeningly frustrating yeah i mean honestly the the only part the only time i really rolled my eyes hard where i was like oh my god movie is this goddamn love triangle thing that they try to shove in here which which one there's like (laughs) the one they want us to buy not the the ones that we detect yes the boring straight one which (laughs) itself is surreal this is a teenage girl (laughs) and a married man yeah she is what 17 18 19 she can't be more than that she is going to new york to hunt for her sister over the course of it she discovers that there are three men who have an interest in this one turns out to be the man who is married to the sister and yet inexplicably in about a 48 hour period falls in love with her Mm -hmm. (laughs) the second one is the psychiatrist who the sister is having an affair with and is now shacked up with Mm -hmm. so (laughs) and then there's a poet there's a random poet. Oh, that's <laughs> that, that, that poet, and maybe we'll talk about it in the plot. But like, yeah, that poet needs to be out or combine, merge him with one of these other men, or right? he needs to be out in an entirely different way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, one hundred percent. And I mean, again, you know, seventy-one minutes long. I was watching this, and basically, in the final two minutes of the movie, when Ward is like. I love you. I know. But I was like, wait, we have two. Wait, I'm like looking at the timestamp. Like, we have two minutes left. What are we doing? <laughs> We're starting another movie. Yeah. Oh, that sister you came to learn all about? No, no. The real story is the love affair that happened when the sister comes to the big city. And you're oh like, what are we doing here? Well, you know, we've danced around it a lot. Why don't we talk about the production of this movie? And we'll start with Val Luton because, and again, y'all are going to hate me and maybe listeners will too. I have heard Val Luton's name thrown around throughout the years. I didn't really know much about him, which is why I did the research for today. Well, also Mm because we're doing a podcast on it, but. Right. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Although I will say I have the Criterion Blu-ray of Cat People that is sitting on my shelf. I just have yet to watch it. Oh, don't worry. I have plans. (laughs) (laughs) I have plans for that. (laughs) I was excited to find out this is kind of sort of a pseudo prequel to Cat People because of the the Tom Conway character, but Mm -hmm. more. Or not. Or or not. Or he's just playing the same character. Or he's just 
inexplicably alive after having been killed in the last film. (laughs) (laughs) So let's talk about Mr. Luton for a bit. So yes, Mr. Luton, Mr. Luton, oh my God. Val Luton journeyed to Hollywood and was hired by MGM to work as a publicist and assistant to David O. Selznick. And that name might sound familiar if y'all listen to our episodes on Rebecca, um, Mm. the old dark house, maybe Bride of Frankenstein, probably. I mean, a lot of, you know, this era of film. Right. He is the guy. Very much the guy. He also worked as an uncredited writer for Selznick's Gone with the Wind. Oh, and that, that's what it was, right? Because Selznick was the producer who got Gone with the Wind and Rebecca at Best Picture like two years in a row. Mm-hmm. But uh, he kind of got um, became notorious in Selznick's eyes because he wrote the scene where the camera pulls back in Gone with the Wind to reveal hundreds of wounded soldiers at the Atlanta Depot. He also worked for Selznick as a story editor, um, a scout for discovering literary properties for Selznick's studio, and a go-between with the Hollywood censorship system. So, honestly, he kind of sounds like Selznick's bitch. I mean, he knew the in and outs, and he did the things that a high-paid executive didn't do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he also, I believe he also did some editing. He had hands-on skills with film. Yes. In every capacity. Yeah. In every capacity. And, and he had his own, or developed, his own unique vision. And I think that was a thing that was really respected. The other thing we've got to remember about these movies, these movies were cheap. Yes. Mm-hmm. These movies were like, that. each of them was made for $150,000 or less. And he turned them out quickly. Like, several of these films came out in the same year. So, so, so he was a reliable provider of stuff that would make money, that would make money that audiences were, were tuning into. They were B pictures, but they had sort of an aura about them that fit in with other things that were going on with noir, for example, and, and sort of thrillers and horror, but at the same time contrasted against a lot of what we saw, say, in 1943. Casablanca was 1943. Mm. There were a lot of musicals in 1943. There were a lot of war pictures in 1943, as you might expect. So it was interesting that this was almost like a secondary channel of programming that was running through against all of these other pictures. Well, it was mm-hmm. so funny because reading about this, so I mean, yeah, basically in 1942, he becomes the head of horror at RKO Studios with a salary of $250 per week, and he had to follow three rules. One of them, like you mentioned, David, is that he had to come in under a $150,000 budget. They had to be under 75 minutes. And his supervisors would supply the titles while mm-hmm. they developed the script around them. And I was kind of like, is this the Blumhouse of the 40s? <laughs> it's very <laughs> much of. like that. And the other yeah. thing they would do in order to save money is they would use the sets from other previously made films. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, and just light them in dramatically different ways and treat them very differently. But, like, it was that combination of Blumhouse and Roger Corman, that whole sort of thing where... A producer's mind is responsible for everything that you're seeing on the screen, not necessarily the director. Mm -hmm. The whole sort of auteur theory sort of falls apart here. We associate, you know, the creative vision with the director, occasionally with a director-writer duo. Mm -hmm. In this case, the producer is placing a strong visual stamp and a strong look and feel, and even a continuing cast of actors and a continuing group of crew from film to film to film. Mm-hmm. 
So when I was in college, I took a, a film producing class, like, and our big semester project was we had to develop a, a concept of a film. So we had to come up with the idea ourselves, but also like build like basically the pitch to the head of the studio, which included a budget breakdown, a complete treatment of the plot, like Ooh, wow. a description oh, yeah. of the aesthetic. Because I took the class because I was like, oh, it's film producers. They just like delegate. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they just like scrounge up money under couch cushions. Oh, shit. I was wrong. <laughs> it was so funny because I, I came up with an idea that was basically a ripoff of Liar Liar, and it was called Being Frank, and it was about a guy named Frank who was born with the, you know, the curse of constantly telling the truth. And I, I admitted to it because my project got picked for, like, the top 10 in the class, and out of a class of, like, 60 kids. And there was a part where, you know, they, all the kids could interview or ask you, about, poke holes in your project, basically. And one of them was like, isn't this just Liar Liar? And I was like, it's a different name. It's a different plot, similar concept. And they were like, yeah, but it's a ripoff. And the, the teacher looks at him and goes, that's fine. It yeah. doesn't matter. <laughs> do, yes. do, you, do, do you watch movies? <laughs> exactly. exactly. Have you seen a Hollywood film? <laughs> <laughs> this kid really thought he had me, though. <laughs> oh Which is why it's so funny, though, with these film titles, right? Like, if we heard that a studio was providing a director or a creative team with like, this is the name of the film, you need to now come up with shit, like we would bulk at that nowadays. But at this time, it was very much like, we're going to give you carte blanche to do whatever the fuck you want. You just need to make a movie called The Seventh Victim. And we need it in under budget by this date. I mean, Go. whenever I'm doing the the cheat sheet for all of us, you know, and I'm oh, like, what 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 is the cinematographer done in the past that's like notable? I honestly hate doing these movies from the 40s because they all have like 300 credits to their name. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But in this particular case, the cinematographer did do, first of all, a number of other noir films mm -hmm. like Out of the Past, but also did a number of the other Val Luton movies and right. is responsible for, again, that really striking look and feel. And some of the sequences that, uh, that we see that are sort of echoed from Val Luton movie to Val Luton movie. One of the, mm -hmm. one of the common ones is the nighttime chase down the alley. Yeah. Yeah. Which has been in several of his films. And if it isn't in an alley, it's in some other sort of location where all of the random things that are, that you see in here all feel like personal attacks on, on the character who is on the run. And it's a really great set piece in, in Seventh Victim. Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. It stops the show. It just, it's it's quite frightening. But you see it also in Cat People. You see mm -hmm. a version of it in Ghost Ship. Like, it's clearly something that, that Luton has in the back pocket as one of his trademark scares. Right. Yeah, and you are correct. The cinematographer did both Cat Peoples and the Ghost Ship. That's Nicholas Musaraka. Yeah. But also the composer, Roy Webb. He did Cat People, I Walk With a Zombie, Ghost Ship, and then the editor also worked on Ghost Ship. Yep. There we go. I mean, I, I know it's not exclusive to the horror genre, but like it really does feel like it's kind of in these horror in the horror genre where you see a lot of directors and I guess in this case producers keep the same crew around. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know what's funny about this though <laughs> is the director is Mark Robson. Mark Robson did a few of these sort of noirish kinds of films, mm -hmm. but mostly did war pictures and sort of issue dramas and things like that. And the things we know him now for are things that are just saturated with camp. <laughs> like, oh, really? You know, yeah, oh, like like Peyton Peyton Place, Place and, and Earthquake. And Earthquake. Oh. And do not forget, 
Valley of the Dolls. Oh, <laughs> I would like you to draw a line between Seventh Victim and Valley of the Dolls. The look, the feel, the sound. It's, they're nothing alike. <laughs> <laughs> He's got range. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. So, basically, because Cat People was so successful in 42, this pretty much gave Luton um, carte blanche. Like, he had very well. Okay, I say he had very little studio interference outside of these right. rules, which I think is where the production woes came from. And yeah. I mean, we'll talk about it in length, but I'll pull this quote from Harry M. Benshoff. Thank you, Joe, from Monsters in the Closet. Mm-hmm. He writes, visually, the films employ chiaroscuro lighting and expressionist effects, acting as a link between classical horror films of the 1930s and the later 1940s films noir. The films have a paranoid and pessimistic world wherein traditional roles of gender and sexuality are perpetually in flux. More on that in a bit. Mm-hmm. Characters frequently find psychological terror within shadowy corridors and behind locked doors, and often the narrative is concerned with the investigation of a female subject, in many cases by a psychiatrist. They struck on a successful formula with Cat People, which was a love story, three scenes of suggested horror, and one of actual violence. Apparently, homosexual connotation was also part of that formula, for many of the ensuing films can easily be read in homosexual terms. Yeah. Not sure if this is super relevant, but Luton's aunt was notorious lesbian producer and actor Ala Nazimova. So, I don't know, maybe he had like an in. Maybe he was like, oh, yeah, queer. Let's go. Yeah, he also has a background in writing like pornography and stuff. So I think <laughs> he was just like a really sexually liberated straight dude. It's possible. In the 40s. Or he was that, plus he was in a milieu where you mm-hmm. had a bunch of people who were all queer or experimenting right? and who were expressing this kind of stuff. And the thing is, I mean, at this point, there was a lot of sort of covert queerness oh, being yes. used in horror and mm-hmm. uh, in order to create an unease in the audience. Mm-hmm. You couldn't actually put a name to it most of the time, but you certainly could sense it. Ghost Chip has almost an entirely male cast mm-hmm. and it is one of the most repressed oh, yes. homoerotic horror movies and it's not even really a horror movie it's more of a thriller mm-hmm. ever made and you watch it and you think to yourself how the hell how did, did they get away get with on this? the screen <laughs> exactly that so, captain wants to diddle those men well of course and so you know and so and it's similar here and one of the things that's remarkable about the covert queerness in seventh victim at least for me is that it's not villainized right right i mean it's happening among the villains mm-hmm. but it itself is not villainized right right so it becomes kind of fascinating as a result because you sit there and go did i really hear that mm-hmm. am i really seeing this is this actually happening in front of me these big emotions between women these bizarre glances and and strange flirty feelings between the men like what Mm -hmm. is happening here and for a modern example of a film that uses maybe not covert queerness to instill unease in the audience please see last week's episode on creep (laughs) there we go for sure So going into the actual production of this film, though, so the script for The Seventh Victim went through several incarnations in the pre-production process. One version was going to be an orphan caught in a murder plot amid California's Signal Hill oil wells. Eh. Yeah, and 
the, the heroine was gonna have to solve the orphan's identity, saving him from becoming the seventh victim of an unknown killer. That's eh, kids. Sure. Okay. This version of the script was rewritten entirely by DeWitt Bodine, and Bodine was also a writer on both of the Cat People movies. Mm-hmm. Under Luton's supervision, and this new plot is basically what we have here. Um, yeah. It incorporated other elements of his experiences in New York, um, like Jacqueline's cosmetic business, um, which was inspired by his previous work as a journalist reporting on cosmetic companies. The Italian restaurant Dante's was based on Barbetta, a restaurant in Manhattan's theater district. Uh, we've already kind of talked about Robson a bit, but coming into this, his main claim to fame, if you will, he worked on it as an assistant on Citizen Kane. So this was going to be his film debut. They shot the film over 24 days at RKO's Gower Street Studio in Los Angeles, California in May of 1943. In post-production, there were multiple edits made to the film. Here we go. Yes. So I have a list, and I think we'll talk about them in the plot summary, because there's basically four major scenes that were cut that kind of fuck up the continuity of this movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they fill in some details. <laughs> But in a 2003 interview, Luton's son said, uh, said this about it. He said, My father's scripts were very specific about set design, camera direction, and also what you usually left to one editor. Dissolves, cuts, and so on. Much of the confusion in The Seventh Victim would have been eliminated if scenes weren't cut. There was a final scene after the woman, Jacqueline, hanged herself. That was just a horrible rehash, and it was wisely cut. But basically, like, they had to get under the 75-minute runtime, and so that's why we have the 71-minute movie here, which... Right. Do y'all know the reason for the length? Is it just because they could show the movie more times in a day in a theater? Basically, they were double bills. So mm -hmm. you would have the A film, which was the prestige film, the film that everyone was coming to, and then you would have the B movie. And the B movie had to be shorter in order to be able to fit... The, the number block. of viewings necessary, yeah. yes, the, the entire block. Because this was also a time when there were newsreels and there were cartoons and there was all this stuff. Mm -hmm. So in order to be able to fit it all into one package, the B-movie inevitably had to suffer. Mm. Right, and RKO was basically a B-studio. Like, it was a Skid Row studio, so this is what their bread and butter was. Like, you didn't make A pictures at RKO. Gotcha. Well, the film was released on August 21st, 1943. They spent a total of $130,000 on promotional materials, apparently, which is almost the film's budget. Like <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like, uh, shifting that for inflation, like, that is a huge marketing cost. Yeah. Well, and unfortunately, while box office data is not known for the film, it supposedly, I mean, supposedly, it's known that it did not fare well with audiences upon its theatrical release, as David already kind of outlined earlier in the episode. I mean, <laughs> there's a quote from a cinema proprietor in South Carolina who reported that theater goers were disappointed. And he says, honestly, I'm surprised that this is a, a theater proprietor because it sounds like a critic wrote it for a pull quote. Hmm. We must have been the eighth victim. Patrons walked oh, out. <laughs> business poor and some of the kids would not sit through it yeah right an employee in california a theater employee in california said it was without a doubt the most unsatisfactory picture they have any recollection of i do wonder if it's like i mean again the equivalent of cinema score today but it's like yeah this right. downer ending in a yep. movie that has some logical inconsistencies mm -hmm. i think people were just flummoxed yeah and if you think about a horror film I mean, we often joke that horror films are marketed towards, like, teenage boys, but that really was the case back in these days, right? Like, they often thought, okay, our bread and butter are these teen boys or men. So 
if you're making a female-centric horror film that doesn't have a ton of action but is heavy on atmosphere, and then, yes, also has this fatalistic, nihilistic <laughs> ending, like, this is not the easy sell that some of the other, like, universal monster films would have been. Well, or even the previous films, Cat People and I Walked with a Zombie, both of mm-hmm. which were big hits. Yeah. And this film and Ghost Ship were the two sort of flops that actually slowed things down for Val Luton for a while. It took mm-hmm. a while for him to recoup. And then when you finally get to uh, Curse of the Cat People, an entirely different movie from Cat People, a yep. much more sort of whimsical fantasy, you know, kind of melancholy film rather than something that's either chilling or suspenseful. It's it's an entirely different thing. So he he was very much operating in his own world, but at his own peril, because... Right. If he didn't keep making money, he was not going to be able to keep making films. Mm-hmm. Reviews for the picture were, I mean, honestly, they weren't the worst I've ever seen. Reviews did praise the atmosphere. They said it was really eerie. You know, the climax is gripping. I definitely agree with that. But as I said, like a lot of critiques on the characters in the storyline, lack of cohesion. Um, one review said it might make more sense if it was run backwards. <laughs> God. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, of course, today, um, uh, it's honestly considered like a masterpiece of horror cinema, which is interesting because, I mean, again, I don't hear it talked about that much, but maybe that's just because of the circles I run in. I don't know. It's gained a lot of prominence in the last couple of years. Like, David and I were lucky enough to catch this again because they released a Val Luton collection. So once his films began to become more accessible, I think that's when the shift started to happen. But I've seen a lot of people talking about this and a lot of queer horror people talking about this movie in the last few years. One of the things that was a benefit to it as well is that it appeared on the Criterion channel for a period of time. Mm. And that made it possible for a whole new audience to get it. Because it's not easy to get as an individual DVD, um, as opposed to being part of that set. Um, It's not really accessible on any other streaming services. Not for free. Not for free. (laughs) Mine was a $2 rental on Amazon Prime, but I, I always try to get Blu-rays for the movies we cover because I want to like look through those extra features, and no dice with this one yet. No, no. And it's a shame, because it's also a really gorgeous movie. Oh, God, mm-hmm. it's so pretty. And it would really benefit from that kind of restoration mm-hmm. that we've seen with other films from this period. And, you know, seeing it where, you know, the blacks are black and the whites are bright and moving through those shadows and having things emerge from them, I think would just be an incredibly intense experience if the whole film was sort of brought up to date. Mm -hmm. But that said, if you are able to catch it, you know, despite its rarity, it is it is definitely worth looking at in all its peculiarity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. I mean, that's really all I have on production. I mean, again, we'll talk about the scenes and stuff as we go through the plot. But, um, I mean, why don't we why don't we dive into this plot, Joe? All right. So we open on the words, I run to death and death meets me as fast and all my pleasure are like yesterday. And this is a holy sonnet number seven by John Donne. And initially, it seems like this is just like text <laughs> that we're opening the film with, like a title card or something. And then we eventually pull back and we see that this is a quote on the stained glass window at Highcliffe, the girls' school that Mary Gibson, played by Kim Hunter in her film debut, and this is where she attends. It's an interesting way to start the movie. 
I don't know about you two, but I find the cursive nearly impossible to oh, read. I, had to I actually it. had to pause it. <laughs> <laughs> if I hadn't already known the quote, right. I would absolutely have struggled. It was such a peculiar thing to start with, and then to have it be at a girls' school. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, like, hey, girls, uh, cheery, cheery girls' school here. Run towards death, girls. Yes, exactly. While Latin is going on and people are doing scales and, like, all sorts of... It's very... And the place is eerie. It's like a convent, almost. Mm-hmm. It was so funny, too, because um, you know how, like, we have all those uh, those listicles today? They're, like, um, a famous actors whose first movie whose first movie was a horror movie and, like, you didn't know about it, blah, 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 blah. Right. I was like, oh, if that existed in the 40s like that would be kim hunter because i didn't mm-hmm. realize she was the same i mean i knew she was from streetcar named desire but i actually grew up watching her in planet of the apes <laughs> yeah oh, you really? did okay she did relatively few films i yeah. think what she had was a thriving stage career and uh, okay. they really didn't know what to do with her mm-hmm. so it was a really interesting debut for her because of course she's just this absolute ingenue she she right. is like this white beam of light through the darkness through the entire film. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is funny because I normally fucking hate characters like this, <laughs> and I actually find Mary very tolerable as a protagonist. I think it's because she, I mean, I, she seems intelligent to me. She's yes. She has agency. Like, she's not just mm-hmm. this damsel in distress, like what you would normally see in a movie like this, especially of this time period. Yeah, absolutely. We'll get to it, but virtually every female character that appears on screen, you're like, oh, she's she's tough. She's interesting. She's complicated. Mm-hmm. And then all the men are like, who's this twat? I'm, I mean, <laughs> yes. y'all, I couldn't keep the men's faces straight. Like, I could not. <laughs> we'll talk about it when we get to Judd and, and, and uh, oh, my God. Hogue. You keep forgetting his name. I love it. I love it. <laughs> he is such a nothing character to me. <laughs> And the only reason I remember Judd is because he has that pencil mustache. Yes. yes. Yeah. Give him a villainous uh, psychiatrist <laughs> mustache. We'll remember him. Okay. So Mary is introduced as she is summoned to go and meet with the two lesbian coded headmistresses, Miss Lowell, who is played by Atola Nesmith, and Miss Gilchrist, who is the nice one, played by Eve March. <laughs> I wrote in my notes this woman's a bitch. <laughs> oh, yeah. Miss Lowell? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So they inform her that her sister, Jacqueline Gibson, who will eventually be played by Jean Brooks uh, at around the 50 minute mark of the movie. (laughs) Uh, We do. I'm sorry. We do get a two second shot of her. I want to say 30 minutes in when she goes, shh. And then leaves. (laughs) And then is out of the movie for another 20 minutes. (laughs) But it's it's an amazing moment. (laughs) It's really good. good. It's just like, oh, okay, good. Like, here she, oh, no, she's gone again. Bye. (laughs) It's because you think this whole movie is going to be like the sister finding the other sister. And it is. But also, this other sister is MIA. Like, Jacqueline is nowhere to be found. (laughs) It's great. I don't dislike it. It's just when you go into this, you think, oh, we're going to find Jacqueline at like the end of the first reel, 10 minutes in. Nope. No, no. <laughs> so basically, Jacqueline pays for Mary's tuition. And since she has gone missing, she's not paying that tuition anymore. So Miss Lowood is like, you need to get the fuck out of here. But also you can come back if you want to and you can like work for us, to which I was like, Bing, the gator just went off. So I will confess, I didn't I didn't pick up on the lesbian coding in this scene, but now that you say it, it makes oh, more there. sense. So w- what then do you make of the, this, I don't know her name, but the aide who's like, if you don't find your sister, 
don't come back. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Don't come back to us perverted lesbians. Yes. It was really fascinating. She's like, run, run with the wind. <laughs> you seem like a nice girl. Don't get sucked into this. Yeah. I signed a deal with the devil and I'm eating this muff for the rest of my life. Like, Don't Gosh. take my spot. At the all girls school, though. Yeah. <laughs> Well, when you consider whose it is that you're eating (laughs) in that scene, it doesn't look great. (laughs) It's true. Yes, it looks like a dry muffin. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) I mean, one of the important things to recognize is that this film, like, we're not joking, folks. If you were unable to find this or you didn't watch this and you're just listening, this movie is so fucking grim and nihilistic. But there's also repeated refrains to, like, what you need to do is go and live. So, like... Miss Gilchrist definitely says, yeah, don't come back here. But she says it in a way. She says, don't come back here, no matter what. A woman must have the courage to really live in this world. And, like, people say those kinds of lines all the time. Like, Hogue literally hands Jacqueline a cup of tea that says something along the lines of, like, here, this will make you want to live. And you're just like, it's a cup of tea. (laughs) It's a really damn good cup of tea. (laughs) okay so all this to say mary packs her shit and she leaves Mm -hmm. so she's now moving to the big city and she goes to her sister's cosmetic company la sagesse and she meets with the woman who runs the company esther reddy played by mary newton i don't know if this film was influential on other films of its ilk like specifically like the cult film but i mean were y'all getting like ruth gordon in rosemary's baby or Anne dowd and hereditary in this role Oh, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. But what's really interesting and what's really cool for that period as well is, you know, these women are depicted, including Mary, as strong, independent Mm -hmm. women Mm -hmm. who are building their lives, you know, in the absence of men because the men are off fighting at war or Mm -hmm. else they're all mildly infatuated with each other, as we see throughout (laughs) the film. And, you know, so a woman like Esther Reddy, who technically comes off as a villain Mm -hmm. and technically comes off as being kind of butch is completely in control in this factory environment is testing Mm -hmm. all the products personally is taking responsibility for how things work and it's a really interesting role for that she has a lot of texture for someone who is not critical to the story yeah she was giving me miss danvers vibes from rebecca Mm -hmm. but As you're saying, David, if she wasn't the villain, she would be the smartest, most productive woman in the room. Like, she just happens to also be a Satanist. I honestly wasn't expecting her to come back after this scene. I thought she was just going to be a side character who was out of the movie. Yeah, I mean, this movie also has weird issues with the characters. It's moving through situations and characters so quickly that you're never quite certain what is and isn't important unless a character comes back. Right. And the other thing that I think is also cool about this, we later, of course, discover that the cosmetics company has a logo that Mm -hmm. is associated with the Satanists. But normally (laughs) in a film like this, you would have the success of the company being, you know, in some way ascribed to the mm-hmm, Satanism. Right. That it would yeah. somehow be tied in that, oh, this is why these people are the way they are. It's because they worship Satan. Mm-hmm. And and none of that happens. No, nope, It, never it seems like sound business personship, you know, and apparently Jacqueline had that and apparently Reddy gets that as well. Mm-hmm. So 
it's intriguing. I will tell you that the conversation we get from the Satanists when they explain why they do what they do, it's so interesting. Like, you've yes. never heard this before. <laughs> I found it refreshing. I was kind of like, okay, that makes sense. Like, I'll, I'll join your cult. Like, sure. I was going to say, if you if you watch this movie and don't leave it thinking, hmm, should I be a Satanist? <laughs> Honestly, it seems just like a great idea. It seems like a bunch of nice folks. Just don't, don't, yeah. don't tell their secrets. <laughs> exactly. Don't go to a psychiatrist. This movie is like, hey, you know this recent fad that everybody's doing in 1940s? Like, don't go to see a psychiatrist. It'll only get <laughs> you into trouble <laughs> that that that's the thing yeah therapy is the villain of this movie right <laughs> okay so also at the factory is Jacqueline's hairdresser Francis who is played by Isabel Jewell and she helpfully points Mary in the next direction in her investigation which is that she saw Jacqueline a week ago at a restaurant called Dante's and she is not 100% not Jacqueline's lover Absolutely not. not. She only not. did her hair. Which <laughs> hair you decide. She only did her hair. hair. <laughs> That's a good euphemism. <laughs> okay, so Mary heads to Dante's and she chats with the owners and they're like, cool, let us feed you the next clue. Like, this is where it's so noirish, where Mary is the investigator. She's going around interrogating people, getting clues to get from point A to B to C all the way till the end of this movie, which, again, maybe that's the reason that I like her is that she's kind of just like moving things along. I mean, listeners to this podcast are no stranger to the fact that I noir is not. You hate noir. I yeah. don't like noir. But I liked the noir aspects of this film, and I'm starting to wonder if I just like female-led noirs, because I know that Bound isn't like a true noir, but it's a neo-noir. But yes. like... I really love Bound, and I like the noir mm -hmm. elements in that, so I think I just like watching noir when it's wrapped around a female protagonist instead of a man. Interesting. I don't know. Either that or you need to lean into the femme fatale more, because mm. like some of these noirs have really boring male PIs, but the femme fatales are so good. Yeah, I think of the films with Barbara Stanwyck, for yes. example, oh where she is clearly the strong character and even if she doesn't appear to be manipulating the men around her, mm -hmm. you know, she absolutely is. Mm -hmm. Mary's really interesting from a horror perspective because traditionally around this time, what you are, what you would expect to see are young, defenseless women who are constantly yes. being rescued by men. Yep. Mm -hmm. As we've already discussed, the men That's are not effectively useless. <laughs> <laughs> The women are on their own, and they're either going to be able to rescue themselves, or they're not. Mm -hmm. You know, and they're going to have to make decisions in the moment about what they do. Yeah. And you would think that would be true of all the characters except for Mary, but Mary, in many ways, is the most decisive and the most resourceful, and sometimes mm -hmm. most impetuous, of all of them. And it's, yeah. it, it's very striking. Yeah. Yeah. The number of times that Mary just walks into a situation and you think, girl, no, don't go to a cosmetics company with a strange man in the middle of the night. Like, <laughs> this isn't safe for you, but it's fine. She's Mary. <laughs> in this case, she's like, okay, so you just mentioned that my sister had a room upstairs. I want to see this room. And there, and the, the man who owns this restaurant is like, no, we can't let you in. And she's like, show me the fucking room. <laughs> no, 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 no. She plays, to, she plays to her feminine wiles. And she's like, please, I'm just a frail lady. Please, I have to find my sister. That's mm -hmm. what she does. At the same time, she's still quite insistent. And then the guy says, oh, actually, I've always really wanted to see what was in this room. <laughs> like, Motherfucker. And what is in this room, Joe? <laughs> 
Okay, so it's either a full room that we're not seeing, or it's a broom closet that contains <laughs> only a chair and a noose. I guess the idea is, like, it's not their room, so they legally can't exactly touch it. Yeah. But I'm just like, oh my god, y'all, there is a noose hanging in this room. Mm-hmm. Get rid of it! <laughs> my favorite thing is that they don't get rid of it. So that noose will just be there for the end scene, for yeah. the duration of the film. Like, cool, let's just leave nooses lying around. <laughs> it's Chekhov's noose. Uh, so obviously this is not a great development especially since we can't find Jacqueline so everybody heads back downstairs this is when we are introduced to poet Jason Hogue who is played by Erford Gage and you know that he is a completely useless character when he encourages Mary to check her feelings does she really want to find her sister and you're like yes yes And of course, the woman who runs the restaurant is like, oh, he's always joking. And it's like, that was a joke? That was funny. (laughs) Maybe he just has a really grim sense of humor, but yeah. So instead, she does what rational people do. She goes to the Missing Persons Bureau so that she can file a form. Mm -hmm. And this is an interesting scene because part of me was like, what is happening in 1943 that every single one of these counter attendants is occupied by somebody filing a report for a missing loved one? It's New York. It's New York. Jesus. Okay. (laughs) It's a dangerous city. Yeah. So she files this report and she then bumps up against a predatory private investigator named Irving August, played by Lou Loban, who offers his services. But when she declares that she has no money, he is like, oh, okay, never mind. But when he gets warned off the case because of whose case it is, then he gets interested again. So he like snags the files. Yeah. So Mary's next stop, eventually, she goes to the morgue and then the morgue directs her to the law office of Mr. Gregory Ward, who is played by Hugh Beaumont. And because she is having a hell of a day, she faints. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing even happens. She just sits there and she's like, oh, ugh. I think she's just overwhelmed. To be fair, she says the morgue sent me. And I think the feeling about the possibility that, you know, her sister might be dead overwhelms mm-hmm. her. But it also mm. has been a long day. We later find out that she hasn't eaten. She hasn't eaten. <laughs> yeah. She has a line earlier, I think it's with Francis, where she's, uh, I don't know who, but she says, I think I'm finally starting to get frightened. Like, I actually like, it's such a simple line, but it's one of those things mm-hmm. where it's like, um, if you're if you're experiencing like a real tragedy or like, again, like a missing person, there's that threshold when it's like, oh God, when am I starting to get scared? And like, it's, mm-hmm. I don't know. I just, I, I really liked that journey for her. I mean, even if it's a narrative line, but I like it's it. It's the Lily Sobieski line from Joyride. How scared should I be right now? Yes. yes. Oh my God. Exactly. Exactly. So when Mary eventually awakens, this is when Gregory Ward confesses that he loves Jacqueline, but he was never afraid that she would take her own life. To which I say, do you know this person at all? And also, where is she? Her single character trait is that she's always wanted to die. Mm-hmm. She hasn't kept it a secret either. No. She no. runs around telling people all Every the fucking time. Yeah. Hi, my name is Jacqueline. I really want to die. How are you doing? And yet yeah. she's portrayed as this sort of like good time party girl, you know? It's like... 
that is what I find fascinating. And I, I love how this movie builds an aura of mystery around Jacqueline, mm-hmm. right? Where Mary keeps telling everyone, you would remember her. She is unforgettable. Like, she will literally leave an imprint on you that you will be unable to forget. And then when we finally meet Jacqueline, we're like, she's That's it? so sad. Like, no, I think she's absolutely fucking stunningly gorgeous. But also, yeah, like, the personality, I'm just... Yeah. I would be concerned about Jacqueline all the time. She is the friend that you want to get on antidepressants, you want to get into therapy, and you are calling a couple times a day just to say, hey, are you doing okay? Well, she is in therapy, to be, fi- to be fair. <laughs> okay, well, she's in bad therapy with she's Dr. She's in Jen. bad therapy with a man who is sleeping with her. So like, it's, it's just, you know, her situation is baffling. You know, mm-hmm. you, hear, you hear contradictory things all the time, and then when you see her, it's a struggle to match who she is yes. with all of the things that you've heard, which mm-hmm. I think is amazing. I think it's actually a really magical thing to do mm-hmm. to create this much mystery around a character. It reminded me of the film Laura, which, of course, is also oh, yeah. a noir of a yeah. sort, where you spend an enormous amount of time watching a film about a woman who is dead that everyone falls in love with. You know, mm-hmm. even though she's not there. <laughs> so yeah. this this had the same sort of quality about it. And it turns out that it's absolutely true. Mm-hmm. Once you see her, you know she's indelibly etched in your mind. You would absolutely remember this woman if you saw her on the street. You would remember her for weeks afterwards. There is no question. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's actually very unfortunate for kim hunter because kim hunter is obviously also very gorgeous but the minute that you see gene brooks in this movie you just think oh well i know which one is the dowdy sister now (laughs) (laughs) that's nice (laughs) kim hunter they just put glasses and a ponytail on her exactly yeah she's 1943 glasses and ponytail (laughs) it's okay she's got gregory sam oh god (laughs) Okay, so Gregory takes Mary for dinner, yes, because she confesses she hasn't eaten all day, and they go, they have a lovely time, he walks her home, and then he bids her goodnight and encourages her to live and enjoy life. Hmm. (laughs) So before she can go inside, this is where she is, once again accosted by August, the PI, and he says, I've looked into your case, I've got a lead, there's a weird room at the La Sagesse factory, (laughs) and she's like, cool let's go check it out right this very instant in the middle of the night I'm like bitch you just got travel all the way to new york you've had a really long day you you, you fainted like mm-hmm. <laughs> she's on a mission like maybe take your shoes off and put your feet up <laughs> for a couple of hot minutes but no they need to go investigate this mysterious locked door and what happens he goes down the least scary long dark hallway And I say this facetiously because this is, like, what Val Luton does well, right? Like, there is nothing there. It is literally just a badly lit hallway. And he walks down it, and it's super tense. And then he comes out, and he seems fine, and he seems fine, and he seems fine. And then he dies. Yep. And it's great because you're like, I have no idea what just happened. Something scary. Uh, But we gotta go. So... I will confess, I was a little confused at first because I, I wasn't sure what had happened until we oh, get sure. that, that brief shot of, I mean, black and white liquid <laughs> on his hand. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, he had been stabbed. And yes. 
of course, she's like the night watchman, the night watchman, the night watchman is here and he's not responding. Mm-hmm. And you're thinking, okay, he's not Something's okay. Wrong. Something's wrong. But what is it? Why is he still walking? And right. then when he collapses, it's quite shocking. And you're exactly right. Mary flees. Like, which was also an interesting choice. Mary mm-hmm. doesn't go to the night watchman. Nope. Mary doesn't do it. <laughs> Mary knows. You know, uh, we're not supposed to be here. I'm getting the fuck out. I am not having any association with this. (laughs) Well, I think even just it's this idea that you have suddenly found yourself wrapped up in circumstances beyond your control. Like she came to find her sister and suddenly she's embroiled in a murder mystery. And I love the idea that she just goes, gets on the subway and just rides it. A couple of times. But she can't escape this body. (laughs) I fucking love this. This was definitely the moment the first time i watched this movie where i just thought what is happening in this movie because she happens to be on the one train car that these two heavies leo who is played by uh theodore chalapin jr and dirk who is played by wally brown and they are propping up august's body like he's just a drunk friend and they've had a good night out and they happen to get on the exact same car as mary and then of course she like vacates the premises and tries to get help and when she comes back they're gone but you're just like wait how big is new york (laughs) everybody gets on one train car in new york apparently i love it i love it it's great (laughs) for a movie that doesn't have any supernatural content whatsoever which might Mm -hmm. have been a reason why it failed yeah right because people would have expected that there would be some supernatural content. Yeah. It does have a lot of coincidence. Yes. It does have a lot of crossing paths. It does have a lot of moments of sort of danger suddenly looming out mm-hmm. from what seem to be innocent circumstances. Yes. And, and a lot of it is happening, as it should, really, in Mary's direction. <laughs> mm-hmm. So it's a legitimate scare. <laughs> And Joe, this is the second movie this week that we've watched where people just happen to run into each other in New York City. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> we watched Cruel Intentions earlier this week, and there's a oh, whole scene yeah. where like three characters just happen to run into each other in Central Park, which yeah. is not small. <laughs> no, it is not. <laughs> but I do love that if you take that step back, this very much does feel like, yeah, it's not just coincidences and like weird things afoot, but it's very much a, hey, life is weird. And sometimes you just have to go out and live it because things will present themselves to you. Like this right. movie is so much an investigation, but it's also about take a step out the door. You never know what's going to happen. And in Mary's case, it's going to get worse before it gets better. <laughs> but um, I mean, she gets what she's looking for at the end of the day. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so she has breakfast with Ward in the morning, and he doesn't believe her about what she's seen. So they check the newspapers, and he's like, oh, there's this other murder, but it doesn't sound like the one you're looking for. And she calls him out on this bullshit, and then he apologizes for infantilizing her. Yes. But hey, he tells her to drink her milk. And she turns around and says, no one tells me what to do, bitch. It's fantastic. I wanted to stand up and just like standing ovation. (laughs) We're doing the Nicole Kidman clap where like the fingertips don't touch, but the palms do. I know exactly what you're talking about. (laughs) 
yeah. and then and and you're like ah oh, that moment is so great and then he's like i got you a job at the kindergarten oh God. And when that happened i was like fuck do we gotta go watch this drama with her new job like what what are we doing oh my movie? god thank god we only get one scene and even that you're just like are we padding the runtime with like her trying to adjust this kid's jacket but no it's fine it's fine yeah. well and and this this can i think that's what's next right the kindergarten scene uh no first we have to introduce the padding scene where dr lewis judd who is played by tom conway talks about his approach to not treating clients anymore because he doesn't (laughs) do that he just writes books but also let's talk about his approach to treating alcoholism with this unnamed receptionist yes he in fact when she says that her father is is uh an alcoholic and needs treatment he refers to her refers to her father as a dipsomaniac and indicates mm-hmm. that dipsomania is sordid. <laughs> it was like, what a nice bedside manner you have, mm-hmm. Mister. Who? No wonder people are flocking to you. And also, sir, we're about to find out that you're fucking your client. So <laughs> let's keep the sordid talk to a minimum, it shall we? It must be something about the way alcoholism was treated in the 30s and 40s, because we just watched Dracula's Daughter a couple months ago, and in that movie, mm-hmm. one of the guys is like, oh, you just cure alcoholism by putting someone in a room with a glass of alcohol and tell them not to drink it. Yes, yeah. Oh, yeah, that always. Yeah, 110%. <laughs> <laughs> well as as we said treating people for their various vices and psychopathies and just like daily afflictions was very much a new and exciting practice at this time yep. so we didn't exactly know what the fuck we were doing with regard to mental health mm-hmm. okay so uh yeah then we've got dr judd talking with gregory ward and it's revealed here that not only does dr judd know exactly where jacqueline is but he's basically extorting gregory ward for money and he wants it in cash (laughs) it's like oh wow that's what like blackmailers and mobsters do dr judd well and i don't want to go too deep into cat people because as you said joe we'll probably have another episode on it oh you bet your sweet ass is he he's uh is he a villain in cat people He's basically this exact same character. Yeah, he's not really a hero. <laughs> no, but he's not a villain either. Like, he's he's just not a good person who happens to be there. He's just as incapable <laughs> in both films. But the other thing is, he's a psychiatrist. Mm-hmm. He's nicely dressed. He yeah. doesn't need money. No. Why is he taking money from, you know, from this lawyer? Right. It doesn't make, a, again... Not that it has to in yeah. this dream world, but it doesn't make a lot of sense. It seems like it's just a nasty, torturous thing to do. Mm-hmm. Like he's a prick. He's a prick. Yeah. Oh, but you know what? Rent in New York is pretty high. So, you know. <laughs> I mean, this apartment that Jacqueline is revealed to be staying in does look rather swanky. Yes. <laughs> yes. Which is actually where we're off to next. So Dr. Judd goes and introduces himself to Mary at the kindergarten, and then they travel to this apartment to see Jacqueline, and she is not there. And Dr. Judd immediately gets very panicky, even though Jacqueline was just there because we've got a warm lit cigarette still in the ashtray. When he sees that she's not there, he's like, cool, bye, I'm out of here. One quick mention about the kindergarten scene, though, before we get here is that 
Mm-hmm. She gets a visitor, and the, and the teacher is like, oh, aren't you the popular one? You have a visitor again. Because before this, there was a scene cut in which Ward uh, visits Mary at the kindergarten, which okay. would be like, oh, like she had someone before this, but that scene is cut. So when she's like, oh, you have a visitor again, it doesn't like it doesn't make, it doesn't make sense. sense. <laughs> no. And that actually possibly is a scene that would have helped the film. It's hard to say because yeah. we don't really have any real content. But it would actually make mm-hmm. some sense for Ward to have seen her there. So, yeah. yeah, because folks, spoiler alert for the end of the film, we are building to a proposed romance between the lawyer and the sister. And they spend maybe two scenes together in this entire movie. That's what I'm saying. Though. I mean, half the time I was like, OK, she's just with Ward the whole time, but she's actually with Judd the whole. No, not Judd. Oh, my God. Hogue. 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 <laughs> <laughs> Here we go again. <laughs> the interchangeable men. Damn it. <laughs> it's like face blindness, only it's unmemorable character blindness. I can't. <laughs> anyway, but yeah, so Jacqueline's gone. <laughs> yeah, so Jacqueline is gone. So Judd panics, he leaves, and then almost immediately, there's a knock at the door, Mary opens it, and lo and behold, here is Jean Brooks as Jacqueline. And we're like, cool, let's get this sisterly reunion going. No. Nope. Jacqueline makes a silent motion and then closes the door and just poofs into thin air. Mary immediately follows her, cannot find her. Jacqueline is already gone. It's yep. amazing. Yep. yep. Almost halfway through this movie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, did you want Jacqueline? No. Wait. You have to wait more. (laughs) Yeah. As a result, you know, it's a tremendous impression that the character creates. Oh, God, yes. Mm -hmm. You're like, who is this woman? (laughs) I I know this is pre-Betty Page, but, like, the hair is so striking. Oh, my God, yes. I feel like Jean Brooks maybe even gets her own lighting scheme because she, she looks... I want to say effervescent in a way like she yeah. just looks ethereal when you see her mm-hmm. and and that's kind of why I made the crack that Kim Hunter looks like a bit dowdy as a result because you're like oh yeah she's she's fine and yep. then you see Jean Brooks and you're like holy shit balls <laughs> so when Mary comes back to this hotel room, there's this other PI guy who is there, Rodeau. He is played by William Halligan. We've met him once before. He was the guy who warned off yes. uh, August. So he's not a bad guy, like like we assumed. No, especially here when he reveals, actually, I've been hired by Jacqueline's husband. And then it's like the shoe drops. The husband is Gregory Ward. So we knew that he loved her. We didn't fucking know he was her husband. (laughs) Secret husband. Yeah. And here's another scene that actually makes me like and respect Mary. We go to Dante's and she is grilling him. And he's like, oh, I I didn't know. I didn't tell you that. This continues for a little bit as they chat a bit more. And then we get a very unusual scene with... Um, what's his name, Trace? What's what's his name? Uh, Jason Hogue. <laughs> yeah. So we get this weird scene between Hogue and the female owner of the restaurant, and they basically talk about how mm, nobody has fun like them anymore, and they look over at Ward <laughs> and Mary, who are talking about the fact that he lied about a secret marriage to her sister who's gone missing, who's maybe in danger, and they're like, those two need to smile more. <laughs> And Jason is just the guy who can Jason do it. Jason on the case. Like, why isn't he a comedian in this movie as opposed to a poet? I'll never tell you to drink your milk, baby. 
<laughs> Let me tell you a joke about the milk and how it'll make you want to live your life. <laughs> so he goes over and he joins them and he decides he wants in on this full-blown caper. So he says, you know what? I'll help you find Jacqueline. So he brings them to Natalie Cortez's party. She's played by Evelyn Brent. And we mentioned it earlier, sort of briefly. She has one arm. And the actress in real life has two arms. (laughs) So this is a deliberate choice to make her a disabled amputee character. It is not commented on. She is not shown to be deficient in any way. It is not addressed in any capacity. I don't even recognize it most of the times I watch the movie until the second time we go back to her house. So, okay, there's three more deleted scenes, but two of them, the next two, involve Miss Natalie Cortez. Oh. She's like a top four build actor in this movie. Yes. Which you'd never know because it's a cameo of a cameo. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So the second scene that that was deleted, it features Judd visiting Miss Cortez, pretending to be interested in joining the Paladists. The two discuss philosophical matters, mainly the notion that if good exists, evil exists, and one is free to choose between the two. Mm. Cortez reveals that she became a Paladist because, and I quote, life has betrayed us. We found that there is no heaven on earth, so we must worship evil for evil's sake. And I don't know why this was cut. If only, uh, the only reason I can think is that maybe they found it redundant given the the explanation we get at the end of the film. Yeah. Although I would have preferred this because I find the scene with Mm -hmm. him and Jason at the end of the movie, I'm just like, this is affecting the pacing of the movie. And also it's kind of nonsensical. Yeah, although I do appreciate the fact that they've removed an evil for evil's sake kind of thing about it. That is never true. really get the sense in this cut that the paladists, even though they're devil worshippers and Satanists, you never get a sense of evil. <laughs> no one actually runs around going evil. Mm-hmm. They seem, as a result, to be quite normal mm-hmm. and normalized and attractive. Right. And I think that that actually complicates it they do they do later on feel a little bit of shame for having (laughs) tried to off jacqueline and having the lord's prayer thrown in their face but (laughs) (laughs) they they honestly remind me of what the satanic temple is today yes yes the satanic temple i mean yes they they are worshiping satan whatever but it's not it's not from a place of malice or evil it's not like it's Mm anti-religion I mean, again, I recommend everyone go check out the documentary Hell Satan because it's quite fascinating. But like that to me, like the Satanic Temple is a modernized version of what the Paladists are in this film. Exactly. Right. And that to me feels more like they're sort of outside of a realm of religiosity mm-hmm. and more about a more, I don't know if I want to say practical, but a more practical <laughs> worldview. And that to me, for a while, until they start acting up, Mm-hmm. makes them quite fascinating and yes. makes them kind of attractive. They have oh, yes. nice parties. <laughs> yep. They're very well We dressed. show up here, we, we don't know that that's who these people are. So it looks like we're just dropping into a Green Witch party that yep. is filled with attractive, well-to-do people who look like they're having a good time. Yep. So Hogue has brought them to this party because Dr. Judd is there. So this cues us in why dr judd would have been there in a longer version of the film and dr judd's like i don't know and we get (laughs) a kind of extended scene with jason having this 
get to know you almost date like conversation with Mary where uh you know we learned that there was another patient that he used to work with or had a crush on of Dr. Judd's we learned that Jason used to be a very successful writer but he hasn't written in 10 years and it's inferred heavily that because this girl disappeared maybe under nefarious circumstances right. that that's why he no longer writes and you're like oh okay well this maybe explains why jason is a character in this movie yeah maybe kind of i mean <laughs> fine <laughs> i'll give it to you so at this party also we have a female party goer and i i should have gone back and done a second rewatch to check to see if it's the same woman who complains about the rules later on but she basically suggests that she has had an intimate affair and that is a direct quotation from the movie with jacqueline before jacqueline began sleeping with dr judd my dear we were intimate yes <laughs> And yes. like, obviously, this is where we get accused of reaching. Oh, was she saying intimate? And you can have an intimate relationship between people of the same sex. And it doesn't mean that there's something queer afoot. Mm, no, I mean, I, <laughs> I think there's enough in this film to warrant the reading that Jacqueline is at the very least bisexual. Because, I mean, as we said, she's getting both sets of hair done by Francis. <laughs> <laughs> well, and what? justifies the reading around francis is that someone says you know we know you loved her mm -hmm. and then when we see the two of them together in a room francis is not acting like a concerned friend no and francis is not acting like someone who has a collegial relationship mm -hmm. <laughs> francis is absolutely passionate for this woman yes there's nothing you cannot read anything else I mean, if you got both eyes shut, you can definitely give it a good old-fashioned try. But yeah, if you've got a pulse and eyesight, then yes, you're seeing this relationship. Yeah. So this is when Hoag doubles down. He's like really adamant that he's going to help them to find Jacqueline. So he ends up going on a book hunt where he links Reddy and Judd's reading to a closed shelf, to which I'm like, okay, well, I can do a queer read with the term closed shelf reading. And he links them to a satanic group called the Paladis. And I think one of the interesting things that really struck me when I was reading Benchoff's bit about this film, one of the things that opens the chapter is that Benchoff acknowledges that homosexual secret societies were actually a popular thing at this time. So we talked about I think it was in the Dracula's Daughter episode, but it might have been the Creature from the Black Lagoon episode about how the U.S. Army was trying to crack down on homosexual infiltration and people were getting kicked out. They were losing their livelihoods. And obviously, queer bars were a thing that did exist, but yep. they were very like, hush, hush please give the secret handshake code word kind of deal. <laughs> so the idea of a secret society where you get to just be yourself without having to go through all that rigmarole or fear of being punished in your daily life seems very attractive. You know what this is? What's that? Chosen family. Right. These are yes. house parties, mm -hmm. as would be held back then. I mean, bars back then were controlled by things like the mob and so on or by corrupt police officers, or a combination thereof. So if right. you wanted to have some way of escaping all that, private house parties were absolutely a way to go. Those were still mm -hmm. very vulnerable to being busted. But right. 
when we see how they're dressed, how elegant they look, how fashionable everything is, and Judd is in there and he's doing like card tricks and stuff like mm-hmm. that, the whole thing feels very queer. Yes. <laughs> Which I think is hilarious that we're all like, oh, is this a club I want to belong to? And it's like, oh, we probably already do belong to this club. Well, they're but, also, I mean, they're closeted, right? Because again, yeah, the yeah. only rule they have is, I mean, they have a lot of rules, but like the the, 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 the death <laughs> rule is, yeah, don't tell anyone about us. Don't yep. out yeah. us. Yes, literally do not out us. We are trying to hide. It's in plain sight, but we do not want to be publicly known, even Mm -hmm. though we're going to put the logo on a bottle of perfume. Well, and to me, one of the things, again, in a traditional horror movie you would have by having the logo on there is it would be a signal to other people who are like you. Oh, come to us. Mm -hmm. Oh, we are one of you. Right. Never is that said. And in fact... (laughs) It's almost the opposite. (laughs) It's almost the opposite. And I know we'll get to it. And when we do, we will have a laugh. (laughs) Well, that's actually where we're at. Yeah, because Mary decides she's going to gather intel. So she goes to Francis. She gets her hair did. And (laughs) this is where she's basically pumping her for information. She she literally gets her hair did in this scenario. Uh Yeah, no. I'm not being facetious. I'm not doing a turn of phrase. So uh, Francis, bless her sweet, naive mostly stupid heart she basically just divulges everything it's okay i mean again if we're, if we're putting a queer reading on this it's kind of like uh, i don't know like you know when you're so closeted and like you want to tell like your best friend or something yeah. but right you're, you're so afraid that if you tell them they'll reject you and so it's like this is like mary is like her confidant her best friend that she'd be like oh my god yeah like this is what it is mm-hmm. and then ready comes in it's like you fool <laughs> <laughs> And it's like, Reddy, you're the idiot. You're the one who put the logo on the bottle, Dude, on exactly. the factory, on everything. Sight. <laughs> like you're shipping this bitch out worldwide. What are you thinking? Yeah, God. it's very funny. It's very hypocritical. But I feel like that also gives us some funny insight into Reddy, where you're just like, okay, well, she's very good at what she does, but also she kind of can't help herself. Well, she, yeah. she's the type of queer who's like, no, 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 We don't bring in outsiders. This is my group. Right. I've been ostracized my entire life. Now I get to ostracize you. Mm-hmm. I make the VIP list. Yes. Uh-huh. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so because Mary has learned more than she probably should at this time, we should take a shower, right? So Mary <laughs> hops in the shower, and this is where we get Psycho before Psycho, folks. Uh, Reddy appears in silhouette through the shower curtain. She insinuates that Jacqueline is a murderess who killed August and that Reddy took care of it. But isn't it time for Mary to go back to the convent? Oh, oh, sorry. I mean, back to the women's school. Okay, but for the silhouette, did y'all think that her hair gave her like demon horns? I mean, yeah. Okay, I didn't know that was like, I, th- I thought I was being smart. <laughs> no, I mean, you are, you are, because you're like, oh, it could be a hat, it could just be her hair, but no, it's I also, just, like, like, she's a very threatening presence. Yes. Plus, of course, being queer-coded, we have the fully-dressed, menacing butch woman, mm-hmm. and we have the naked teenager. <laughs> yep. Like, the juxtaposition is genuinely threatening in mm-hmm. the terms of the film. Yeah. And you honestly think to yourself very briefly, absolutely, Reddy could kill her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, sure. And Mary knows, actually. She doesn't say that she feels vulnerable. She doesn't express anything like that. 
But Mary obviously knows how vulnerable she is in that moment. Mm-hmm. It's really menacing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think the scene is great and it really shows you what you can do with framing and lights and yes, performance, but there's no violence here. It's two women having a conversation between a sheet of plastic and it is super uncomfortable yes. and menacing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, like, and I oh, mean, like, great. the film plays with, you know, shadows throughout its runtime, but from this point forward, it's like shadow overdrive. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah. So Reddy goes to Natalie Cortez, and this is where we get a sense of some of the other figures in this group. So I only took note of the women because the men are boring, so... <laughs> Miss Fallon, who's played by Isabel Jewell, complains about the Order's founder, Johann Rosenquartz, and his contradictory rules. So the big two that are in play right now is that they have all taken a pledge of nonviolence. So it's fun that we learn after the fact that Mary was in no danger because Reddy wouldn't have hurt her. Right. And then we also have, yes, this rule that anyone who betrays the group must die and that six of them have done this in the past and all six are now dead it never occurs to anyone that ready having put the logo on her fucking bottles could possibly <laughs> have betrayed the group right <laughs> they do a modern remake of this and it's like the movie ends when somebody just does a web search of the yeah symbol. oh it's on this perfume bottle i guess we know exactly where to look it's like this meeting of the paladins has come to order. Um, we can definitely talk about Miss Jacqueline, but excuse me, ready. Um, we have some business to discuss. <laughs> Exhibit A. <laughs> have a glass of wine. <laughs> well, here's the funny thing. We haven't even touched on the fact ready acted without approval from the group by yeah. dealing with August's body. So this whole train car subway thing that Mary witnessed, that was ready acting without approval from everyone else. And it's like, you took a fucking body on the New York subway. <laughs> An empty New York subway. <laughs> and found the one car where your witness is. <laughs> She's gone rogue, man. She's gone rogue. I mean, in a more conventional movie, I do think that Reddy would have been punished with death. Oh, sure. yeah. I mean, remake this movie. I don't care. Do it. Like, Give me a modernized version of this. I'm into oh, it. Oh, I don't know. I think part of what makes it work is the fact that it is a product of its era Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that the inconsistencies within it give it a more dreamlike illogical quality that you just sort of get pulled along with yeah yeah i can see that who has tried to do that david lynch with mulholland drive Mm. right which has a lot of this i mean it has a lot of the same imagery it has a lot of the same look and feel it's just transplanted to los angeles yeah Mm -hmm. But there are there are echoes of it in that film, and right. he's really the only one who is pulling that kind of stuff off. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. So what we're saying is we want not a de facto sequel to Mulholland Drive, but we want a New York spinoff, which is secretly a remake of this movie, but involving sure. involving benevolent Satanists. Right. Of course. Sure. Absolutely. It's just compulsory. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so Mary has been properly spooked because, of course, she doesn't realize that she was in no danger. So she visits Hogue and she's like, okay, I'm going to leave. I'm done with this. 
I'm not feeling good about this anymore. And he's like, well, maybe we should tell Jacqueline's husband that she's a murderess and see what the lawyer thinks about it. So they congregate, blah, blah, blah. Hogue eventually, it's... Around this time, I'm 90% certain that I am using Jason and mm-hmm. Judd and Ward like interchangeably yeah. because yeah. honestly <laughs> they are they are all the same man they really are they have merged into one blob of a male individual because <laughs> not to say the film has been slow before this but it really starts picking up as we're gearing towards the ending and so mm-hmm. like it just they're all these characters coming in the scenes together <laughs> Right. Yeah. And you're like, okay, so man follows man, yeah. but badly. <laughs> I mean, I do love it. Jason, sweetie, you are a poet and you are trying to shadow this man. It's so fucking obvious he pauses to wave at you. That's yes, how bad exactly. you are at this. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so Judd does eventually acquiesce to lead them to Jacqueline and he brings her down this staircase, which I'm just like, of course she gets a grand fucking entrance, even though they're mm-hmm. the ones who came to her. And I love how Jean Brooks plays this because she looks excited to see Mary, but also like she has no clue who she is. And she looks like she wants to bolt at any minute. Yes. It's fascinating. This performance is outstanding. And so brief. And so brief. Yeah. So this is when Hogue offers her tea that will put some life in you. And Jacqueline then tells her story. How did she get wrapped up in the cult? What ended up happening? She does admit that she killed August. So she stabbed him with scissors. But it's because Reddy had locked her in this room at Lat Sages for days on end. And she was kind of delirious and out of it. So this means that Jacqueline was in that room when yes. Mary first encountered Reddy. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, she was there the whole time. time. Yes. Which is also funny because you would think that Francis might know that she was there, but maybe it's a big factory. That is a question I have. I mean, because we don't get much of Francis except for, you know, the two scenes and then, you know, her Mm -hmm. vague emotional breakdown. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But yeah, I don't know how much Francis knows about this. Yeah, I get the impression that she is a member of the group, but also she kind of doesn't have a clue about what's going on. She seems like that sweet sister that gets dragged along to things and it's like sit in the corner the adults are gonna talk yeah Yeah. Mm -hmm. there's definitely that overwhelming feeling i don't think francis knew that jacqueline was actually in that room i Mm -hmm. think that if she had she probably foolishly would have tried to help her escape yeah right yeah or just brought mary directly to her oh yeah jacqueline she's in the back let me go get her So, okay, Jacqueline tells the story, but she's safe now, right? They've got her in this apartment. They're going to keep her under watch. So Mary's going to go back to work at the kindergarten. (laughs) (laughs) Children, You know, because this is what you came to New York for, to look after other people's kids. And then she finds out, oh, shit, the paladists have got Jacqueline and she's gone. I've got your third deleted scene here. Okay. So because, yeah, they just have her. We don't know why they, how they got her. No. So in a third excise scene, Judd again visits Natalie Cortez, indicating that he wishes to join the Paladis. In conversation, Judd unintentionally reveals that Jacqueline is staying with Mary at the rooming house. This makes the audience aware that the Paladis were able to trace Jacqueline to Mary's room to kidnap her. Mm -hmm. But obviously in the version we get, we don't know how they got her. Like, they just have her already. Yeah. She might as well walk there by herself. I'm kind of fine with not having this because I figured that they just had eyes on Mary 
and they were keeping an eye out to see if Jacqueline showed up at any one of their respective houses. That's yeah. kind of what I figured. It sure yeah. does make Judd more stupid. Stupid, yeah. Yes, and I don't think Judd needs to be more stupid than he is, because <laughs> we're, we're supposed to be under the impression he's smart. Right. Whereas having Mary sort of being watched along with everybody else in this invisible way makes it creepier. Mm-hmm. It makes it seem like the paladists are larger than they actually are, and that they right. have more influence than they actually are. It's I think it's more effective. So mm. I mean, that's the thing. In like okay. two of these four deleted scenes, like it's a whole subplot with Judd and Cortez. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So interesting. Okay. So now we're up to arguably one of two of this movie's most infamous scenes. So they have Jacqueline at Natalie's house and she is sitting in a chair that just absolutely dwarfs her. I mean, she's slouched in it. She looks very defeated, very tired and exhausted. And they are just seated around her. There is a table with a single glass of wine and they just barrage her, telling her to drink this poisoned glass. There's something unsettling, but also comical about this. So there's something inherently funny about just a group of people standing around someone, watching them not die by suicide. We're not going to say it's camp, but it's definitely showcasing how powerless this supposedly like massively powerful group is. But I also just love the way that this is shot and framed. Like, mm-hmm. they're oh, yeah. so tightly pressed in around this tiny table and this little woman. And watching her just completely, you know, no, no, no. And then I love Francis's big moment as yeah. well. I don't want to say it comes out of nowhere, but we don't, like, we didn't know. Well, I guess we kind of knew her close relationship with, with, uh, with Jacqueline. But yeah, this mm-hmm. is... Oh boy, she gets the Oscar moment in this movie. It really is. Yeah, one of the things I think that really sells the scene and keeps it from teetering over into being hilarious is Mm -hmm. the fact they are all intensely committed to it. Yeah, right. And you feel the room shrinking down around Mm -hmm. this woman and you feel her exhaustion growing. And when she's asking for a drink of water because she's so thirsty and they just push the wine forward, it's just, it's so diabolical. And then you have the moment with Francis where, you know, like, just drink it, just drink it. And then... I can't do this anymore. It's about me now. You (laughs) need to die. Exactly. And then then as poor Jacqueline reaches for her, she's like, she slaps it away and goes, no, don't drink it, don't drink it. And it's like... (laughs) What the fuck? <laughs> I think that she plays it very well, but yeah, oh, it's yeah. so erratic. It's so yeah, over yeah. the top. It and is. I, I I don't mean to keep bringing up influences, but I feel like there's another movie that's more modern where it's like, yeah, it's someone trying to make someone drink poison to die. And so watching this, it just felt, I'm sure listeners are going to be like, oh my God, I know the movie mm-hmm. yelling at us in the radio, but yeah, let us know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let let us know. By the way, I'm sure it's there. But um, yeah, this is um, I don't know. Like, I really, really like all of this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's a breathtaking scene, and and the intensity that Francis as a character brings to it, it's so unexpected too, right? Yeah, you know, you sense that there's something between them. You had hints that there was something between them, but this absolutely just pulls the cloth right off. There is mm-hmm. absolutely no question that they have had some kind of erotic romantic yeah. relationship yeah. because this is the only explanation for this behavior yeah also i was thinking of diana riggs death in game of thrones 
Oh, uh, okay. Hmm. Anyway, but okay. um, yes, no, 100%. Like, if you were on the fence about the queerness in this film, this scene seals the deal. Right. Yeah. So I'm curious. We've been talking about this as though it's one continuous scene. It's actually not. It's intercut with conversations yes! between jason and judd about how great their burgeoning friendship is and how they're kind of sad that it's coming to an end because mary's leaving and i alighted it from my notes because i cannot give two shits about it but also super queer so joe (laughs) taking my notes i do bulleted list you know i'm go hey this is what happens this is what happens this happens i put comments in once I realized they were intercutting between these two scenes, mm-hmm. I just stopped writing about the men. Right? <laughs> of course. Of course. But also there's some Casablanca level bullshit about like how great the friendship is. And it's like, okay, one of you is not getting onto a plane. Calm down, boys. You're, no one's leaving the city. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like you can still be friends who see each other even if Mary leaves. The woman that neither of you apparently have a romantic interest in. anyway let's talk about Jacqueline more so they decide that they're going to let Jacqueline go because they apparently only had the one glass of wine and they're all very tired (laughs) of doing this yes there is that (laughs) but I do love this is the part that gets me like everything has been so tense it's been so intense watching this all go down and then they just let it all go okay Jacqueline we're going to let you go but also we might do this to you again tomorrow or the yep. day after. You mm-hmm. won't know. We're just going to never let you live a regular life because we will always be threatening to come back and do this to you again. And there is something so fucking nefarious and ominous about this statement. And it is delivered matter-of-factly. Like, cool, yep. we'll see you later. Yeah, and there is again that impression that you get from this moment that the paladists are not just... The people in this room but there is some sort of vast network mm-hmm. that makes it possible for them to just pluck you out right. at any point and that while again there is no overt supernatural aspect that just has a supernatural texture to it mm-hmm. that makes it even more unsettling do y'all remember when they say this is there like a music stinger that accompanies it that's like bum 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 but not not that but you know like whatever the music score is I don't think so. I think it's just delivered in the most sort of, you know, unsettling, but yes. matter-of-fact kind of way. I don't think that there's a lot of movie production no. sending it home. And I like that about this film, and that, to yeah. me, makes it more unsettling. Because you would think that, again, a film of this time period like is using that, just something, that the music cue to be like, oh, so nefarious. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't, it resists the temptation to do that, which, again, just delivering this, well, we're going to come after you, but, you know. Mm-hmm. wait for it uh it's so creepy yeah. yeah and it's funny because like then we move into what i call the cat jump scare scene because this is what val luton does trace you'll see it again when we do cat people there's literally a scene that looks identical to this of <laughs> arena walking down a street and thinking that someone's chasing her and not being really certain and then there's a big scare with a sound cue and that's what we get now so Jacqueline is just wandering these deserted streets and then there's a dog jump scare as a dog gets into a garbage can yep this whole sequence I mean again this is is the last 10 minutes of the movie it is so good Mm -hmm. yeah it is genuinely terrifying because you have no idea how much Jacqueline is really under threat right and from whom Mm -hmm. and how much of it is in her head 
and the entire streetscape, which we have to remind ourselves was created on a soundstage. Oh, yeah. It's not New York. No. This whole stretch is just really playing with her and playing with us, mm-hmm. you know, through light and shadow in incredibly clever and sinister ways. There's one particular moment where she pauses in front of a yes. staircase mm-hmm. going up mm-hmm. to this blackness and this face emerges out of the blackness and it is just exquisite. <laughs> yeah. And it's just a man lighting a cigarette, right? Yeah. A, John, John Carpenter 100% saw this before he made Halloween. Oh, yeah. <laughs> B, I gasped. I, when I saw that, I was literally, I was just like, oh, shit! <laughs> <laughs> so my favorite moment is where she presses up against the wall. Like, she can't handle it. She's taking a breather. She's just trying to figure out where she is, where is safety, and she inches her hand along the wall until she ends up accidentally grabbing either Leo or Dirk, whichever so one is chasing her. Good. Yeah. It reminded yeah. me of Wait Until Dark. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Ooh, yeah. mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, I imagine the scene also plays incredibly different if you're a woman who's ever been in oh, a situation yeah. like alone on a dark oh. street in the big city. There's so much raw tension in these scenes. It's just fantastic. When she touches his hand, you feel it in the pit of your stomach. And I want to be clear here, too. For me personally, I'm not saying it's tense and suspenseful for 1943. Mm -hmm. It is tense and suspenseful, period. Today. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. These moments, these set pieces feel extremely modern. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like we've seen this scare replicated across the last 90 years of cinema history (laughs) because it fucking works. It's still effective. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so she ends up escaping when a crowd of theater performers end up coming out. And I love... I love the way that this just diffuses everything because yep. she has found safety. And this guy is so jovial, just like, come to the pub with us for a drink. And then she gets to the door and all of the nihilism and that desire for death just comes rushing back. And you can see it just play silently across Jean Brooks's face. And she just wanders away into the dark. Mm-hmm. So she goes back to her apartment above Dante, and she meets Mimi, who we've seen once before when... Trace, what was his name again? The poet? Uh, Hogue? Hogue? <laughs> right. Okay, Hogue right. <laughs> so we have met Mimi, who is played by Elizabeth Russell, once before when Hogue goes up to be like, Hey, I looked at the books. Paladis. So Mimi comes out, and this is Jacqueline's neighbor, and she confesses that she's dying of cancer, and that she's tired of waiting to die. And again, you just see everything play across Jean Brooks's face as she has this epiphany that even if Mimi sings and dances, she's still going to die. But what I love, and I actually could have had like a, a 10 minute scene with them right? talking to each other. Yes. Oh yeah. Because it, it's these two opposing philosophies of life, right? Like one woman is sentenced to die and mm-hmm. wants to live the what little life she has left. Yes. The other one has, I mean, not infinite, but like a much longer life ahead of her. Right. And wants to die as soon as possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what I think is also cool about this is that it rhymes with a number of other scenes, mostly with, sadly, the disposable men, mm-hmm. throughout the film, <laughs> where you have philosophies played off against each other. Yes. There's almost this meta text that is happening in the film where people just stop 
to comment on what's yes. going on in the film. Mm -hmm. And where it lands best is here, because first of all, the stakes are appropriately They're so high. high. Yeah. And secondly, because unlike the men. They're characters we actually care, care about, about and engage with. <laughs> we barely know Mimi. We've barely seen Mimi. But mm -hmm. she looks so fragile and luminous. Yes. And the contrast between her and where she's at and where Jacqueline is at is immediately visually so striking. And the things they have to say cut to the core of the film. Mm -hmm. It's a really incredible moment. Oh, yeah, yeah, like, this is the entire movie distilled into a single interaction, and it is revelatory that one of these characters has not had a single line of dialogue before this moment, and probably has five in the entire film. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. it, it really just confirms how important the women are in this movie, and how just annoying and disposable those men are. <laughs> because speaking of, this is, again, intercut... <laughs> with Judd and Hogue debating the Paladis at uh, Natalie's apartment. And also we have Mary and Ward professing their love for one another. And both of these scenes are just like, who fucking cares? No one cares. But but I, I'll read this out because I do love the line. Who was the male leader of the Paladis? I don't even know this guy. Yeah. yeah, I'm sorry. I didn't take his name down. Okay, cool. No, so when, when they're like, why are you doing this? Blah, blah, blah. He, he says... Who knows what is wrong or right? If I prefer to believe in satanic majesty and power, who can deny me? Mm -hmm. What proof can you bring that good is superior to evil? I love it. I don't know how this got past the code at right? the time. Because these people are never punished. No. 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 <laughs> no. They are shamed a little. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like, that's oh, it. God would look badly on this. And maybe it's because they don't actually commit an act of murder or I something. I think so. But yeah. But it's still surprising to me that again, like that they weren't like, um, these people are literally like vouching for Satan and mm -hmm. giving you an argument as to why. Yeah. Again, I'm just surprised that this is in this movie, that it made it past the code, that it screened in front of audiences. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, it could be because the ending right. <laughs> is so shocking that everything else is left in the dust. <laughs> I mean, because they are literally back to back, right? So and yes. I should apologize. It's not that the scene isn't interesting it's that everything that judd and ho right, are right. doing yeah. because they're arguing for moral good and they're espousing blah blah religiosity and like the two of you i'm just so much more interested in what these paladists stand for and how they are approaching the situation that i'm like i don't want to hear judd talk right now the only thing that i think that a modern interpretation reinterpretation of this film could bring is by having the paladists plant a seed of doubt mm. in Judd and mm -hmm. in Jason right. and having their, you know, attempt to like fight back with the Lord's Prayer come off as even more hollow and right. and unjustifiable. Cause you could go that far today. Yeah. Back then no. you're probably stuck with the Lord's Prayer. You yeah. just are. <laughs> I, I grew up Catholic and I, I, I've moved into agnosticism, but it's like, I love, I love these conversations about religion and philosophy and beliefs. And the closest example I can think of it today that we've had in recent memory is something like Mike Flanagan's Midnight Mass, where we're having these kind of blunt, like... There were a lot of those conversations. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Sure. Like this, obviously, this is on a much smaller scale and takes up way yeah. less screen time, but... 
it's like a taste of that where I'm like, oh my god, yes, give me more of this. Like, mm-hmm. I want to, he- even though I, 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 I'm not a Satan worshiper, but like, aren't I, you? No, I, I just, I just, <laughs> I just find it so interesting to hear these conversations. Right. Well, particularly when they're rooted in character and when they are revealing things and where you can place yourself as somebody who's going, okay, well, I guess they've kind of got a point. Yes. Mm-hmm. That stuff, like, where it really engages that way is where it's powerful. I wish Judd and Jason were stronger. Right. Or I wish that in some ways they were more vulnerable to the opposite argument. Well, Mm -hmm. and it's almost like, too, that the Paladists, they're only worshipping Satan because... It's not like there was a great weight on worship God or worship Satan. It was literally like, take a left or take a right turn. Oh, we're yeah. just taking left. Yeah, we, we've just made a different choice than you. It's not necessarily yeah. bad. It's just that we have to call it evil. Yeah. I love that yeah. so much. It's quite subversive. Mm-hmm. And it's not paid off the way that you see with, I don't know if you guys have seen The Devil Rides Out, for example, the mm-hmm. Hammer Horror film, where... There are manifestations of horned demon gods, you know, right. like it's, there's none of that. Mm-mm. There's not even like a little horned demon god in the corner. There's right. not even like a little picture. There's nothing. They are just hanging out. <laughs> yeah. So I realized as you two were talking about this, what I was reminded of was not Midnight Mass. And P.S. if folks want to listen to us talk about that, there's a Patreon episode on it. Yay. But, um... I realized that if they remade this, it wouldn't be David Lynch's seventh victim. This would be folded into the Conjuring universe. And oh, no. we would have the Warrens debating the Paladis, and it would be bombastic and sensational. Yeah. And I'm not coming down on the Conjuring franchise. I'm just saying that that is where we're at when it comes to discussions about good and evil and you know deals with the devil and that kind of stuff like we we kind of got a taste of this in the devil made me do it yeah i mean in fact it's an even more conservative approach oh god it's so what you would see in 1943 (laughs) and and yeah i say this as someone who like enjoys i love the first two conjuring films i think the third one is fine they very much lean conservative and they Mm -hmm. are pro god pro religion so i feel like that would be so reductive but honestly that's because it's going to theaters well i mean in the case of the third one you know hbo max and theaters Mm -hmm. if it was maybe a just a purely streaming service they probably have more creativity to inject some of that Uh, i'm sorry not creativity they have more authority uh, leniency yeah to lean into the more nihilistic approaches of this film Mm -hmm. maybe it's hellraiser Maybe that's where we start to get some of these more pointy or conversations. Maybe Kiyoshi Kurosawa. Maybe it's like Cure and Pulse. Oh, and Pulse. Mm. Oh, man. Yeah. Oh, talk about nihilism. <laughs> you want to talk nihilism? Maybe Go that's who Pulse. should be remaking it. <laughs> All right. Well, actually, no, because, yeah, the American remake of Pulse, I mean, it keeps the, the dark ending, but it loses all of the oh, nihilistic yeah. aspects about technology. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Oh, so. Interesting. So, speaking of nihilism and yeah. death we've <laughs> yeah, got to end this movie <laughs> so we go back to dante's for the final scene so mimi emerges and she's looking fucking fabulous she is ready for her night out on the town and as jacqueline opines in voiceover i run to death and death meets me as fast and all my pleasures are like yesterday Mimi starts down the stairs, and we just hear the sound of the chair being kicked out. And then we go right into credits. Yep. So, before we talk about the implications of this, the original, there was an original coda, an extra scene after this. 
In the final scene that follows Jacqueline's suicide, Mary, Gregory, and Jason meet at the Dante restaurant. Ward and Mary go off together, leaving Jason standing before the restaurant's mural of Dante and Beatrice, making clear his failure as an artist and lover. He says to himself, I am alive, yet every hope I had is dead. Death can be good, death can be happy. If I could speak like Cyrano, then perhaps you might understand. Hmm. Meh. Thank God that was cut. I just think it's, <laughs> it's not necessary, right? Like, not only no. does it undercut just how ruthless and efficient this ending is, it's like, why are we giving him the, last the end? Word. Yeah. And Luton's son, his, his main critique of the ending as is, he says he wishes that the final shot would have held for about four or five seconds longer yes. to, let, to let it sink in. It really needed an extra beat or two. Yes. Now, I'm not sure it would have been allowed an extra beat or two, again, mm-hmm. because of the censors of the time. Right. But, I mean, it would have given them something to cut, probably. But I do think that a little bit of breath to yeah. allow it to sink in yeah. more fully would have been really helpful. I agree. But apparently it was the only shot they had. Okay. They didn't shoot any extra coverage. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's a continuous shot from when Mimi leaves her apartment to go down the stairs. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, the best they could have done is they could have adjusted where the chair kicking over sound occurred. But, I mean, I think they've done the best they can do with what they had. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's just tough because the first time I saw the film, I didn't actually hear the sound of the chair being kicked over. So I thought it was just Mimi leaving and it was uncertain. (laughs) So it just ended. (laughs) (laughs) That's a little, (laughs) a little bizarre. This is a very odd way. And then I, and then I'm like, no, I missed something. I, I obviously missed something. And I go back and I crank up the sound and I've got the subtitles on and it's like thump. In brackets. I mean, I think it's understandable, though, because, it, I mean, again, not to say I'm, like, you know, the best movie watcher ever, but it's one of those things where it's like, hey, you don't know the movie is about to end. No. And the scene begin. I mean, the scene, it's not even a scene, it's just a shot, is of a character who isn't really that important to the movie, so if you kind of, like, check out for a split second. Mm-hmm. And then you'll, credits. You'll lose it. <laughs> you will yeah. lose that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, but that is the seventh victim. Yeah. And possibly, I think, the only movie to end so darkly in that period. Like, just so blatantly. You would know better than either one of us, probably. But yeah, I mean, just given what happens here, I Mm -hmm. would not be surprised if it was the only one. Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking, just for comparison's sake, because we've done a bunch of them this year, I'm thinking about how this compares to the Universal Monsters film. And it is just so much bleaker there is not a shred of happiness to be found because even the fact that oh okay well mary and ward are going to get together now and that'll be great but it feels like the movie is kind of shitting on their bullshit love affair by ending this way because they're like oh sure okay well the thing that was standing in their way is now gone but also the movie ends on that it doesn't end on them And that's, it's just because that was one of the three rules, right? You have to have a love plot in there. It's like, Mm -hmm. well, fine, we have to fucking put it in here. Let's do it. It's like the original Slumber Party Massacre. Hey, be feminist, but also like, put boobs in there. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And the thing is, the film never invests in that relationship. It couldn't, because the relationship is so fucked up anyway, (laughs) that, that we can't invest in it either. We can't take it seriously. She remains a child. He remains, I mean, he doesn't know that he's widowed, but he remains a married man. 
it's going nowhere. So the best you can hope for, you know, is like you have this like temporary heterosexuality over here <laughs> and death and death. <laughs> it's like, okay. <laughs> it's a real popcorn film. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, yep. man. Have fun walking to the car tonight, folks. You know. <laughs> oh, God. Yes, I hope you part close to the doors of the theater. <laughs> hey, we started the episode. We said have a comedy on hand afterwards. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, well, I mean, that is the seventh victim. So, I mean, we've obviously talked about this movie for two hours, but do y'all have any final thoughts on this film? David, go ahead. Oh, well, I mean, obviously I love the film. (laughs) 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 Obviously I love it enough to talk for two hours with you guys. (laughs) I like to think we're not that bad to talk about. No, you're delightful to talk to. But to me... It's just an embarrassment of riches. It can't even contain all of the things that are going on within it. Mm-hmm. And I've seen it now quite a few times. I mm-hmm. watched it again two days ago, you know, and I had thought to myself, I'm just going to have it on in the background to remind myself of, you know, what happens when, <laughs> right. who's what, and which man is which. And then you got sucked in, didn't you? And you get sucked in. And the set pieces, I just would drop everything because I just thought, I need to watch this section again. Mm-hmm. I need to watch her appearance again. I need to watch the Paladis again. I need to watch that scene in the in the street again. Like, all of that stuff, just, it really just seizes you. And it just displays a kind of mastery that is at odds with other things that are going on that are part of conventional storytelling. Mm-hmm. And it makes for such... Well, we've said it before, an intriguing, perplexing, conflicted package. And I think that's one of the things that draws me to it again and again. Mm -hmm. I I really enjoyed this for a first time watch. Well, first and second time watch. (laughs) It's definitely a movie, like, when showing movies to friends, I don't often pull out, you know, like, movies from the 30s and 40s. But this is definitely a movie just because of what it does, given the time period it was made. I want to show it to people to be like, look at this shit. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, and those last 10 minutes, I mean, like, I think they're phenomenal. Like, it's yeah. just such a good, tense, upsetting climax to a film. I, I really, really enjoyed this. Yeah. I've had such a weird journey with this film, because when David showed it to me, I appreciated a lot of the things that it was doing, but I was actually a little underwhelmed and unsatisfied, I think because I was mm. comparing it to some of Luton's other works. And just over the course of a single year thinking about the film reading other people's pieces about it and then getting to watch it again for the show today i've so come around to it like it's a little messy in the ways that not everything quite makes sense and in some ways i think the censorship and the edits make it a weirder film than it might have otherwise been but as a result it's also that much more memorable and there's so many compelling pieces like you said david there's just whole sections of the film where you just can't take your eyes away even if you had it on in the background so yeah i've really become a fan of this movie and i hope that if people watched it and they maybe had a similar reaction to me that they do give it another chance because as we said it's only 71 minutes so like get on that shit but it's really really good yeah it's definitely a film that i think i've even like grown a lot more throughout this conversation Hmm. so Thank y'all. <laughs> well, okay. So yeah, that will conclude The Seventh Victim. But before we announce what we're covering next week, David, first, thank you for joining us. And uh, let people know where they can find you on social media. Okay. So um, 
the most obvious place to find me is on Twitter. I have two accounts. I have a nice account. <laughs> Which Wait, have you I got an barely alt post to. <laughs> <laughs> I have, well, I guess I have three accounts. We won't talk about that. <laughs> so there's at David underscore Demchuk, which is just basically my professional updates account. Boo. But it will, it will, yes, indeed, it will lead you to my other account, which is at Spooky underscore Dad, and it's S P O zero. KY underscore dad, mm. uh, where you will find much mouthier stuff <laughs> <laughs> about my queerness, about my writing, about what's going on in the world, about my bizarre career. It's all there. So I would say that's the more fun one. Mm-hmm. So I would encourage you to do that. If you want to go to my website, it is daviddemchuk.com. Right. <laughs> and people should maybe pick up your book because it's like sort of galvanized the queer horror world this year heard it's a bit of a good read yeah there's that Uh, it's called red x and it's available i don't want to say it's available at amazon when you have perfectly fine local bookstores that you can turn to (laughs) i understand there are supply chain issues this year i'm not sure how they're affecting the book so if you had plans to buy it for yourself or for a loved one for the holiday season order early rather than late that's all i would say you should know that as of this recording um there is a limited time deal on the audiobook on amazon um the audible audiobook that is 7.95 instead of 25.13 in the states that is a fantastic deal i can tell you that the audiobook is superb and i actually read sections of it the other person who reads it is Salvatore Antonio of Schitt's Creek fame and various other film and television appearances. So it's a really lovely bit of work. There's a lot of tremendous production in it. I'm tremendously proud of it. You should be. Well, yes. Everyone go check that out. And of course, if you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us on Twitter and Instagram at Horror Queers. Join our Facebook Horror Queers group to hang out with other listeners and chat all things horror. Find us on Letterboxd to keep track of all the films we've covered and go to our YouTube channel to watch our coverage of Chucky, which, I mean, it's ending? Maybe it ended this week. Maybe our final episode comes out this week. If you have a moment, please rate and review us on your podcatcher of choice. And if you want even more content, please support the show by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash horrorqueers. We're almost through November, but we have episodes on Amazon's I Know What You Did Last Summer series, Sci-Fi Slumber Party Massacre remake, Resident Evil Welcome to Raccoon City, Antlers, and an audio commentary on the original Resident Evil from 2002. An embarrassment of riches. Oh my god, so many things. Um, (laughs) Joe. Yes. What are we checking out next week? All right. Well, as you teased, we are coming to the end of November, which means we are headed into holiday horror season, Trace. So let's delve into the bizarro 1981 world of the gay antichrist. Let's keep this weird religious thing going and talk about fear no evil. I've never seen this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, it's an experience. It is a fucking <laughs> wild ride, folks. So w- whenever we started the podcast, you know, we did our basic homework that was like, okay, Googling queer horror. Like, what are the gay horror movies? And this one obviously was on every single list. Mm-hmm. At the time, it was just really hard to find. Like, I don't yes. think it was streaming. It wasn't on Blu-ray, but there was a Blue release recently, and I'm pretty sure it's streaming everywhere now. So mm-hmm. I am yeah. excited to finally check out this this film. Oh my god. Yeah. Film in quotation marks. It is a <laughs> mess. 
It is going to be so much fun to talk about. But yeah, folks, hold on to your fucking pants. Yeah. Well, until next week, y'all, we can cross out the seventh victim. Indeed. And cross out horror queers. Thank you.